The crypto world is notorious for its risk and its unpredictability. And this past week has seen both of these features surface in a big way as the tarot ecosystem has collapsed upon itself, losing investors billions of dollars. What happened and what can we learn from it? Today, we welcome podcaster and author Brad Mills to the show to discuss in detail the warning signs and the end result of this digital Ponzi scheme. Brad called it accurately back in January, and he's got a lot to say about Bitcoin, DeFi, JPEG, centralized exchanges, and more. In fact, if we didn't end the interview, he'd still be talking but it's all worth listening to and you won't want to miss a moment of it. It's an extra large family size. You might be a Luna tick episode number 608 of the bad crypto podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, two, Who's bad? markets are down so much and you're losing everywhere so it's like yeah. okay what well, it's all part of the same mishmash of it's true you know wins and losses the the goal is to have more wins than losses yeah well what's funny is uh about uh 16 hours ago the price of luna was 0.00000999 and it is actually up 8830 percent since then and I actually bought some Luna, not quite at that all-time low, but I'm actually up a little bit on my Luna. <laughs> nice. You are a Luna tick. I'm a Luna tick. Not too many people at this point can say they're up on Luna, Mm-mm. but uh, I did buy some at like uh, uh, two, two or three Satoshis, and now it's like 20 Satoshis. So Nice. Cash it in while you can, Sir Lord Travis. Take, take yeah, the money and run. So uh, you discovered Brad Mills, although other people had previously discovered him because he hosts a podcast called Magical Internet Money. And he called this back in January. You spotted this information in a video you were watching about Luna. And I thought, okay, we got to do a show on this. Let's get somebody on who knows stuff because, you know, you and I were bad and neither one of us were deep into the, uh, the Terra ecosystem. I had some money in it, but I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just being a lemming and and following along. So um, this is a long interview, Sir Lord Travis. Like we talked for, I believe it's like an hour and a half and it is packed with content. Well, I mean, we, well, I was there for an hour and a half. You were there for about an hour. Yeah. Uh, we, we locked it down. Let's see if you noticed when the moments when, when Joel actually had to go do some delivery stuff, which is funny. Yeah. Um, no, it was great. It was like a chat and a conversation. It wasn't so much more like an interview as it was an ongoing conversation, probably more candid and conversational than, than usual. But um, I tell you what, Brad's really smart on a lot of this stuff. He is a Bitcoin maximalist kind of guy. But uh, he has called a lot of things very accurately, and he called, you know, what could happen with Luna. He predicted this back in January. Uh, he saw this with the, the rebase tokens when those things went down, and uh, he's called a lot of things pretty accurately. He's got his own podcast called Magical Internet Money Podcast. Really sharp guy and really covers a lot of the bases on what all happened on this. Mm. Indeed. So uh, we invite you guys to to listen in, settle in for this interview with Brad Mills. And on the backside, 
we're going to tell you about something we'll be launching soon called the Bad Crypto Nifty Club after Brad gets done crapping on NFTs. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> Well, if you're not living in a cave, you're certainly feeling the tremors from the crash that happened this past week. And even if you're in a cave, (laughs) even if in a cave, you're likely to feel the tremors because aftershocks, damn it. And as we surveyed the landscape for who had the inside poop on what happened with Luna in UST, we discovered one gentleman by the name of Brad Mills, who's actually a longtime listener of the show, go figure. And uh, his Twitter is Brad Mills can, which I thought initially it was a Brad Mills scan. Like we were going to scan, we were going to look for Brad Mills. No, it's Brad Mills can. I figured, oh, cause he could. Then turns out he's from Canada. Eh? So he's not wearing a toque today. Yeah. Hey dear. But he did bring his Canadian beard to the show and he's going to tell us all about what happened there with the Lunas and the Oosts. Hey Brad, welcome to the Bad Crypto Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, eh? Yeah, yeah. Hey, there. That's good, Mandy. Do you, you know, I got some people up in Canada. Do you know Marvin? Because you, you guys. Oh, yeah. He sells the igloos. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the guy. All right. Yeah. So it's been a That's hell my of cousin. A my cousin Marvin. <laughs> You're all related, right? Bunch of inbred Canadians. That's what they are up there. So I don't know where I got the Scottish brogue from. That just came out of nowhere. Nova Scotia. That's Nova Scotia. That's Nova Scotia. <laughs> All right. When did Brad Mills? Uh, Travis, you actually discovered Brad um, from. I did. Video. And I signed into my label and we got some mixtape coming out. We're dropping some serious beats. He's got the headphones right there. We're ready to roll. <laughs> We're going to do some rap battles here today for you and talk about the, the craziness, the lunacy that's a, that needs to be the DJ Luna, lunatic. And uh, what a crazy ride we've had this past week. Really, the, over the past month, watching Luna. You're thinking about this one month ago, Luna, 80 bucks, 85 bucks. Today, 0.00009 cents. It got even way lower than that earlier. Actually, the, the 0.00009 is actually up about 8,000% from its all-time low about 16 hours ago. <laughs> All right, let's, let's start with this then. What is Luna? Yeah, what was it intended to be? And uh, so there's a ticker for it, Luna. And then there's UST, which is their alleged stablecoin, which is unstable. So what was the plan? And then how were they going to execute on it? Well, okay, so, so it, didn't, it didn't start off as a Quanzi scheme, but it ended off in a horrible <laughs> quantitative uh, easing explosion. Oh man! Uh, <laughs> there's two puns. That's all That's the puns really I good. have. Those today. were nice. It made me snort actually, which is very rare. A Quanzi scheme. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Well, okay. So if you if you kind of go to the last cycle, the the 2017 ICO bubble, there was a project coming out of Silicon Valley called Basis. If you recall that one, they did this massive ICO pretty much at the top of the last cycle. And Basis was going to be this algorithmic stablecoin. And the way that an algorithmic stablecoin was, it was like a solution to the problem with traditional stablecoins. Like Tether, USDT started off on Bitcoin on the Omni layer. And 
Tether was created by like Brock Pierce and Craig Sellers and some of these folks from Bitfinex, uh, Phil Potter and those guys. And they kind of like were having, they were getting pushed out of the US banking system in 2013 when uh, the DEA or the, uh, the district attorney of New York went after Bitcoin. Um, so like Katie Hahn is a, is, was the chief prosecutor for the corrupt FBI agents in the Silk Road case. And it started off that she was tasked by the DA to go after Bitcoin in 2013 because Silk Road was being used to like circumvent the U.S. drug laws. Right. And so she quickly realized that she wasn't able to go after Bitcoin. And so the, the, the you know, the politicians in charge of that witch hunt basically said, well, go after the businesses, whoever's involved, go after the businesses, shut all the Bitcoin businesses down. And from that, we got Katie Hahn ended up becoming uh, a, a lawyer for Coinbase and uh, LP in A16Z crypto. So she became a partner at Andreessen Horowitz and ended up making like $80 million off the Coinbase ICO, IPO. So but she was previously part of a government agency in some way. Yes, they all are. That's why, huh. you know, the, the, you know, there's lots of like <laughs> conflicts of interest from right. government to crypto regulation. And, and then hey, go shut them down. Go work for Coinbase. You know, well, she ended up doing her job, like prosecuting the corrupt FBI agents because it was actually not Ross Ulbricht that put a hit on somebody that was all like faked by these two corrupt FBI agents that were mm -hmm. they, they like got the account and and faked a hit. And anyway, so she prosecuted them. That never came out in the case because it was like kind of kind of kept quiet. But um, so so after that, like Bitfinex was the biggest exchange and they were they had tether and they were being pushed to by the government. They were, the government was trying to close, shut down tether and uh, or Bitfinex. So they lost their bank accounts. Companies, Bitcoin companies couldn't get bank accounts. So the Tether story actually is the first stable coin. And it came from the need to have the ability for traders to have a tool to be able to go between Bitcoin and dollars. And, and what, because the, what year was this, would you say? 2013, 14. Okay. So it's like first big crypto bubble, right? Before Mt. Mm -hmm. Gox collapsed, but it was like the run up to a thousand bucks kind of a thing. So that's the whole reason why we had stable coins, because traders needed a way to trade into dollars and the U.S. government and the New York state were like pushing Bitcoin companies away and going after them. So it was a very adversarial environment. Mm -hmm. So they created this thing where it was like, well, we're just going to make blockchain based dollars. And it was a Bitcoin. It was riding on the Omni layer on Bitcoin. So that's a one to one pegged at the time. It was one to one pegged. Right. And so that thing had. Uh, usage for quite a while. It took about four or five years for before that grew to $1 billion. UST grew to $1 billion in less than a year. It was like six months or something eventually in this bubble. So the, so the Tether was, was this useful tool for traders. And eventually Tether grew to $3 billion in, you know, at the beginning, I think of the beginning of 2020, uh, Tether was about $3 billion and it came out that Tether was actually not one-to-one -one backed. And that that's what caused all the Tether FUD. You guys are probably familiar with all the Tether FUD, right? Tether's a Ponzi scam and Tether's printing money from nothing. And yep. Tether's got exposure to Evergrande Chinese bonds. It's going to blow mm. up. And here it is at $80 billion now. Yeah. So like Tether at the time was pushed out of the U.S. banking system. So they, they actually got, there was some fraud perpetrated against Tether because they were using a shadow bank overseas and the guy that owned the shadow bank stole $700 million and bought a football team. 
so like tether actually was not one-to-one backed at that point they lost uh, 30 percent of the backing and bitfinex gave tether a loan so then it was 30 percent corporate paper backed by bitfinex and 70 percent in dollars so it's just like at the, eventually they paid it off and it became one-to-one but then they became so big that they they, they started acting more like traditional money markets and banks and they they instead of being one-to-one back where it's like one dollar in a bank account equals one tether they did what every other institution does in wall street and all over the world they don't keep all the dollars they buy u.s treasuries and other government bonds type instruments and hold the value of cash and cash like equivalents in custodial accounts so tether is kind of operating like a shadow bank at this point Mm. it's not one dollar equals one dollar it's one dollar's worth of u.s treasuries equals one dollar on the tether uh, now was that right? was that in a partnership? You think with the U.S. government? Because like, hey, no. you take some of those dollars and buy U.S. bonds. Because who buys U.S. bonds and treasuries anymore? No, no, it actually was like kind of an adversarial thing. Like the the tether's always been kind of looked at as pirate money, and you know it, they've they've been the most supportive of the Bitcoin ecosystem of all the stablecoin and crypto companies. Tether's been the most aligned with Bitcoin. The big competitor that came up in the last cycle was Circle USDC. And they are more in the circle works directly with regulators and companies like Visa and JP Morgan. And circle is like completely integrated into the Silicon Valley, Wall Street, um, you know, pipeline. But Tether actually is kind of like the biggest uh, stable coin. So right. the risk of Tether is that what if it's not backed or what if the government goes after it? So there is no censorship resistance in using Tether, right? Like, Tether is just dollars in somebody else's bank account. And, you know, USDC is just dollars in somebody else's bank account. So some crypto like, you know, influencer guys and some VCs and some devs decided, well, we're going to make a stable coin that's not backed by dollars in someone's bank account, because then, you know, Bitcoin is government resistant. It's censorship resistant. No, there's no middleman with Bitcoin. The you know you run your own node, own your own keys, validate your own transactions. That's blockchain native, right? If you own your own keys and run your own node, the Bitcoin doesn't go between you and a bank or any third parties. Right. You and the network, right? They wanted to create something that was like that, where it was blockchain native that could ride on a blockchain that had no centralized point of failure, in that it was not able to be like dollars in someone's bank account that the government could seize. Mm-hmm. So they decided they, this was Luna that was trying to do this or this was Coinbase. Well, actually, it was uh, it was the founder Zero. of Luna. It was okay. the founder of Luna in 2017. They, they created this concept of uh, basis and basis right. raised okay. basis cash uh, basis raised like I think it was 50 million dollars in an ICO. It was mostly Silicon Valley people and, and Bitcoin and uh, crypto VCs. And, this and then was the SEC, Kwan, right? But he was part. He was part it of that. It, it just came out recently after Terra Luna exploded that this was Do Kwan involved in that. Oh, we wow. didn't. We didn't know that up until just recently. Oh wow! So, so what happened in 2017 was they raised a ton of money, and then the market crashed. Right? You guys remember? Obviously, we went, we went from like January 2018 at like all time highs and all this stuff to just completely destroyed within a matter of like six months, like down 90 percent. 90 percent. The markets were cra- even Ethereum went from 1500 to like 150 bucks or something. Exactly. So Ethereum's gone down. Like people had invested in this ICO at like a thousand dollar Ethereum, and then it's down at like 
$100 at this point, and they decide, well, because the SEC says this stuff is all legal securities, it's too much regulatory risk to do it in the United States. So we're just going to refund everybody. And they refunded everybody back at the value of the, uh, um, of the current value. So people even that got, ref- they got refunded lost 90% because they gave them back the money at the current value, not the value it was right. at the time of the investment. Well, hey, hey, one Bitcoin is equal one Bitcoin. One Ethereum is one Ethereum, right? I mean, <laughs> y- y- you, can valid- you can validate that one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. I don't know if you can validate that one Ethereum is one Ethereum. I have to wait and see on that one. <laughs> no joke. I don't so know if you can run a note. But- <laughs> I'm curious about this guy who bought the football team. Did he get busted? I don't know what ended up happening with that guy. I think so. I think in the end, how the hell do you launder seven hundred million dollars to buy a football team with stolen money and not get punished? Uh, I don't know, man. What football team do they need to buy? Because I want to root against them. I don't know. I'm sure we could Google it, but like if you (laughs) you ever if you read the book Billion Dollar Whale, I mean that's the whole story, man. The billions of dollars got got laundered, and like the Hollywood celebrities were all involved and stuff. There's some there's a lot of crazy high level scams and schemes that get perpetrated, and and people don't end up getting punished that much because it's like they do it in a gray area way, protect themselves with anonymous trusts and all this stuff, and they just they ended up beating it in court and paying people off and settling and. In fact, it was the it was the U.S. U.S. regulators actually didn't help Bitfinex recover the money. They were actually more aggressive towards Bitfinex for allowing the like for for not for not like preventing getting the money stolen. I mean, right. the whole history of Bitfinex and Tether is just like the, the government's been extremely adversarial and against them the mm-hmm. whole time. So. That's why a bunch of Bitcoiners kind of like don't recommend people use Tether, but kind of also defend Tether. Even though we don't like Tether, we just we understand that they've been preyed on by the government for so long and pushed towards these shadow banking relationships. Um, But anyway, so more about that here, Aaron. Actually, I'll just go ahead and ask it now, because you say that USDC has been with Circle has been working more, you know, with with JP Morgan and Visa and, and some of these big big organizations, whereas Tether's been kind of pushed out. Uh, I was just having, a, Joel and I were actually having a conversation with a business partner of ours who seems to think that, you know, UST has been, was targeted. And we're going to talk about that BlackRock and Citadel and how they borrowed all this Bitcoin. We're going to get into that. But like, is what, what do you think some of the other USD coin, the US stable coins are, are in danger? Do you think it's, it's, is Tether going to have a long-term run or do you think the USDC maybe has better potential long-term? Um, well, I don't think that te- te- UST, USDT actually did have a run two days ago and it, re- it already repegged. Like it went down to 95 cents overnight mm-hmm. when, when the night that Luna completely collapsed to like below a dollar, there was also a bunch of, uh, there was a bunch of activity in the OTC desks from, um, you know, some of the biggest OTT, OTC brokers that sell calls and options. Like, like basically they allow people to short whatever. And they were right. they they received a whole bunch of people shorting tether, and then it did depeg. It went down to ninety five cents, and you can see in the DeFi pools that uh, the curve pool, the main curve pool, which is like the the pool in Ethereum DeFi that allows you to have fungibility between USDC, USDT, and Dai, which are the three main stable coins in Ethereum mm-hmm. DeFi. The somebody had drained the pool of all the die and USDC and just left the pool full of tether. It got up to like 92% tether. It's always supposed to be 33% full of each one mm. so that you can go in and edit it with fungibility and have all like right. the one, one dollar, one dollar, one dollar. 
somebody was attacking Tether two nights ago, and right. they 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 created conditions that were primed to have Tether depeg. It did depeg. Somebody made a boatload of money on those shorts, but because Tether is not a, a Quanzi scheme <laughs> like USD was, it repegged. So mm. there's not as much of there's 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 like minimal risk of Tether exploding like UST did. And same with USDC. And uh, there is risk in things like DAI and Magic Internet Money, MIM. Like there's risk in those things blowing up. But the, the most extreme risk is still in the other like algorithmic projects. So that's what that's what Basis was, right? Basis was going to be an algorithmic stable coin where it's a blockchain native asset. So you'd collateralize it with a coin, not with dollars in someone's bank account, but with a coin. And it's over collateralized. Right. So MakerDAO was the first deployed algorithmic stable coin mm -hmm. and MakerDAO has the coin die now i don't know what moron came up with that term like you're going to put your money in die like okay <laughs> <laughs> open, my, open my money and live <laughs> yeah i'm gonna put my money and die i'm gonna hold all my money and die it, it's like who came <laughs> up with that stupid term <laughs> I don't well, know. It's like digital I, asset investment or something. DAI. I don't, I, yeah. de 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 decentralized autonomous integers. I don't know what it stands right, for, but yeah, it, it's, it's DAI. And um, basically like in the MakerDAO model, you put in ETH over collateralized by three X. So if you want to have a hundred, if you want to mint a hundred dollars worth of die, which is meant to be $1, then mm -hmm. you put in $300 worth of ETH in the vault like the CDP vault. Mm. And then as long as it's, as long as ETH doesn't collapse by uh, 66%, then you're fine. But the moment it goes below, so, so the moment that $100 now goes below, that means that you get liquidated. So that you just lose your money. And somebody right. else kind of like the protocol earns fees and the people that are like providing the market making service on that uh, back complicated DeFi backend stuff, they make money arbitraging it and all this stuff but basically it's like a simple thing of like you over collateralize it with eth and then you get a die that then you can go and use in DeFi stuff or deposit in a farm or whatever earn yield or just hold dollar value and the idea is that like that that model allows people that want to create an algorithmic stable coin to use in um in uh in 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 ethereum apps and trading nfts or whatever they can do that in a way that it's not at risk of centralized seizure so that there is no bank account that can get seized in that model the problem with that model ended up being that in like nobody was really using it it was only being used by smart contract developers and like vcs that had built the project and invested in it it was, it was not really being used yeah, well, but, we, we talked about it sometime where somebody had had like borrowed a bunch of die or something and then did some stuff all in one transaction and then returned it all back and then made a whole bunch of money because there was like vulnerabilities in the smart contracts, right? So there's yeah, been the, some instances of some crazy shit that's gone down with this. Yeah, the flash loans, like that that's yeah. part, part of the MEV and flash loans and stuff like that with Ethereum DeFi. That's why it's so risky that it's like the dark forest. Like there's there's always like thieves around your path that are just going to rob you. They can see what you're doing and they know that they can make money by front running you and like flash loan exploiting you. So it's extremely dangerous for people to be trying to use Ethereum DeFi as we've seen over the last year, all the hacks and all the explosions and everything. Right. But just the concept of like MakerDAO was it was not as risky 
it was risky because what happened in March uh, 2020 when the markets crashed, MakerDAO was about to explode. Like the the Ethereum price crashed so much that it, it like MakerDAO basically broke. And Andreessen Horowitz, who's like one of the biggest venture capitalist funds in the world, they're like the most influential in Web 2.0. They own you know everything. They're like the 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 godfathers of Web 2. And they they own the surveillance network that that is the internet currently. Oh. They are heavily investing in this Web three stuff because they realize that they have a chance to just like redo the whole thing and get rich again. And like pre instead ultra, of it being ultra capital baby. Yeah, I mean it's like Web two point is you are the you are the product. Everything's free. You are the product. Web three mm-hmm. is you are the pre mine. Like you're the exit liquidity for the pre mine. They own it all already and nobody's even using it really. Like there's not that many people using web three compared to web two and already the same people that own web two own web three. So it's kind of silly when they try to push this narrative out there that it's like for the people and all this stuff. It's like, no, you're doing exactly what you did in the previous 10 years, but you've already done it. You've like usurped web three before it's even had a chance to get out there and and you're already like making billions of dollars on it. So it's just funny watching that happen. But so they own MakerDAO pretty much like they're one of the most influential uh, groups supporting that. And what they had to do and a couple of other whales and funds, they had to actually put a whole bunch of USDC into the MakerDAO protocol. Right. Because it was going to blow up. So in March 2020, when we had that significant crash, MakerDAO was at risk of blowing up, just like UST just blew up. So they they propped it up with USDC. So they because USDC is like one dollar is one dollar. Right. And they're super integrated with the U.S. banks and stuff. So USDC basically like over half of the value of the DAI currency right now is collateralized by dollars. So in my opinion and in most people's opinions in Ethereum and all these other cryptocurrency uh, DeFi things, they look at DAI as a failure because DAI they had to they had to like cheat and like save die by backing it with USDC, which is dollars in someone else's bank account, which is not censorship resistant. Right. So then. And just as an just, oh, by the way, folks, if you're tuning in, it's um, we did interview Stephen Becker, I believe one of the founders of MakerDAO back in episode 442 of Bad Crypto. We had a conversation with him about that and was described, you know, was, was talking about it was in like 2020, September of 2020, when we interviewed him, had him on the show. So like a lot of people in, in DeFi, like s- some people that aren't necessarily like Ethereum maxis or whatever, like they decided that, well, Maker Dice kind of a broken solution now. So we're going to create another one. And then two more got created. One of them was Terra Luna and one of them was Magic Internet Money and Abracadabra. I don't know if you guys have heard of either of those. Like obviously you've heard of Terra Luna, but have you heard of Magical Magic Internet Money? Internet Money. We've been talking about that for years, but yeah, I've, I've actually been on magical internet money and I was staking it, but I actually wasn't earning anything. So I think I was staking it incorrectly or something, but that thing took off there for a while. Luckily I got out at a good time, but so those two were created after die sort of was, was, was defunct and not working out. I mean, it was still working out, but it just wasn't, it was no longer true to the original principle of creating a truly a blockchain, like native uncensorable algorithmic stablecoin because it was backed by USDC. So there's this community of Ethereum or uh, uh, crypto DeFi people that decided, well, we're going to call ourselves Frog Nation 
and we're against the VCs and we're like a bunch of plebs and anonymous coders and cypherpunks and all this stuff. And what they decided was they're going to fork MakerDAO and they're going to create magic internet money and they were going to open it up so that anybody could collateralize it with any cross-chain asset. So what you know you could put your avalanche in there or you could put your solana in there you could put your phantom in there like any of these uh evm compatible uh DeFi chains and you have a podcast about mim right podcast well mim is that about magical internet money or just about <laughs> magical internet oh, money the industry no nah, yeah my, my i just have a bitcoin podcast i'm i'm just a bitcoiner really like my podcast is all about bitcoin and gotcha. uh the magic internet money meme was like back from back in like the reddit days that yeah, was yeah. like you know join us magic internet money but it's just funny like i ended up contacting the developers that's why i know so much about this this stuff because i i was like oh that thing's called magic internet money that's funny i had the podcast like i should go talk to them so i ended up doing quite a bit of research on it and talking to them and messing around with it but terra luna started at the same time like 20 like late 2020 terra luna's launching it's uh you know after DeFi summer um where the fees start to go crazy on ethereum they start to realize like this is unsustainable ethereum is broken for this type of activity nobody no regular person is going to be able to use ethereum for like basic transactions like sending an nft or taking a loan or uh, sending dollars around because it costs you 10 to 20 bucks to to do any kind of transaction or like you know play a game or open a pack or take a turn in a, in a blockchain game so everybody started doing this like like other dApps on other chains and Terra Luna decided so magic internet money and abracadabra decided we're going to start a multi-chain we're going to start it on ethereum but it's going to be a multi-chain version of MakerDAO where we can have mim be the like algorithmic stable coin for all the other blockchains and we're going to create bridges to bsc and an avalanche and all these other chains and yeah. phantom and then we'll have like liquidity pools between all these chains so it'll be like the multi-chain algorithmic stablecoin. At the same time, you have Terra Luna starting up as its own blockchain. And the whole point of the Terra blockchain was just to be the stablecoin chain. So it was like, we're going to do our own blockchain just for stablecoin uh, activity. And they, they had like the mirror protocol and the anchor protocol and all that stuff. And, you know, in summer 2020, we had the invention of the yield farm, right? That's what caused the massive FOMO bubble in to reignite in DeFi and in crypto, like crypto, not, not Bitcoin, but like crypto stuff like Ethereum and, and everything else. It was the invention of this yield farm because DeFi was actually being used before this, but nobody really cared. All the crypto people were still like on the exchanges, like all the crypto traders were still on BitMEX and Binance and uh Poloniex and like, you know, Bittrex and all that stuff. Like nobody was really using DeFi until the yield farm started. So the yield farm was like a honeypot. It was a, it was like a way to get people to put their money into the pools. Mm. When you put your money in, you start getting paid. You love it. Like that's the freaking awesome. When you figure, when you figured out how to farm and, and this DeFi yield and stuff like that truly is magical internet money like that like you knew that well, 2020 that, year of DeFi baby like we knew that it was, just, it was just crazy what was going on with all that stuff yeah that was like all, like all the food ponzi's and stuff right that was like the uh the yams and uh sushi swap and sushi and kimchi and all the all the food ponzi's it was hilarious harvest finance 
Um, so, but it was like Curve and Uniswap and all these these like lending and 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 decentralized finance apps. They started realizing that, oh wait, maybe it's like, maybe it's not the technology that people care about. Maybe it's the earning. You know the the same thing they cared about in the last bubble, the like getting rich off of a token. <laughs> so they decided to start putting that back in because nobody was really using it. Like it was being a little bit used, but then once they started adding those, like the, the, the perverse incentive of a token yield back into the equation, everybody started to come to it again. And so that's how Terra Luna, that's why I identified pretty early that Terra Luna had a risk of collapsing because it was built on perverse incentives. Now, unfortunately, most people that like are in this iron crypto since 2021 came in. I mean, I'm like kind of like an angry old Bitcoin maximalist on Twitter because, because I'm like, why don't you see this stuff as a Ponzi scam? Like, it's yeah, so obvious. <laughs> Here it is. January 29th, 2022. Risks of UST collapsing seem very high. And then you go through the tweets. All these will be linked in the show notes, by the way, gang. Um, that you can go take a look at this yourself. And you explained why this could be a bad thing, including Luna price will go down. Um, and if we look right now, okay, so timestamp this, it is the 13th of May, 2022, 2.45 PM. Luna is 0.00009481, down 99.5%. Um, let's look at the chart to see just how dramatic it is. Oh, ship Wait, that's 24 hours. Here we go. Let's get more dramatic. There we go. Up to $112, pretty much to zero. And yeah. then here's the, the UST. I'll refresh this to make sure we're current, which is supposed to be a stable coin pegged to a dollar at 14 and a half cents. Oh, dude, you called it. Well, I did. And I'll tell you why I called it in January was because like this protocol I'm describing to you, magic internet money had some problems. And if you followed the way that the DeFi ecosystem grew, it grew based on perverse incentives of these DeFi uh, yield farms. And these yield farms don't actually do anything fundamentally valuable. Sam Bankman Fried was on a podcast recently and he basically called it Ponzi scams. He basically said it was a Ponzi scam and they know it's a Ponzi scam, but they're just hoping that the world decides that it was not a Ponzi scam so that nobody gets in trouble. But you cannot actually um, expect that the market won't come to the conclusion that there's nothing valuable happening in this once the once the punch bowl gets taken away. Because the logic is fine in a bull market. When the Federal Reserve is printing $10 trillion to prop up every single market, and you know, after March 2020, everything went up. You know, NFTs became a thing because people were trying to get yield on anything. Pokemon cards went up in value like crazy. Um, watches went up in value like crazy. Shoes, people are buying shoes for like 10x the value they bought them from originally. And then it's like, Rich people do the same thing, but with properties and artwork and whiskey, fine whiskeys and guns and things like that. But like regular people do it with things like collectible cards and um, I guess like, yeah, like Charizards and stuff like that. Right. So everything kind of like in this bubble, like the logic, our logical brain of like what's valuable and and what we should be paying money for gets kind of suspended in a bubble. 
And that's exactly the DeFi, <laughs> the DeFi um, market structure is it's kind of like a it's kind of like a, a, a thrill and you get euphoric because you're making so much money. And then something happens that the rationality kind of like comes back into the market. And then everybody realizes, wait a second, this has just been some kind of money game we've all been playing. And as people start to look around and see everybody else starting to clue into it, you start to pull your money out of it and you start trying to take profits. And when everybody starts to panic because there's not enough liquidity to get it for everybody to get out, everybody starts to run for the exits. And when everybody starts to run for the exits and there's no fundamental value there holding up it, holding the thing up, that's when it can just go completely to zero like Terra and Luna are doing right now. Complete tankage. I mean, we're talking historic BitConnect levels of, of tankage. And actually, I don't even think BitConnect tanked this fast. I was like, it was a, this thing was going down 99% a day. Like, it was at $80 and then it was like down 99.9% and then it got down to like a dollar. And then the next day it went down 99%, like hundred percent. Like I've never seen something go down a hundred percent two days in a row. Like that's, it was, this, this is historic. Wouldn't that be down 200%? <laughs> it's it funny. Two, it's, it's the way it down. Like it was just the, the value of it just insane how quickly it dropped. And, and, and like, honestly, guys, I think this is just the beginning. That's why it's important that we're having these conversations and that people hear this, because I have been saying this since DeFi summer 2020. I basically said that what what these developers are deciding to do is build unsustainable Ponzi schemes on the back of unprecedented money printing that's causing us to suspend our logic and causing people to just go further out onto this risk cliff and try to get as much yield as they can. And everybody's just following a leader and doing this FOMO game. And once rationality comes back into the market, it's, it's all going to explode. And they're, they're so interconnected that this is contagion risk for all the other stuff. Like this fact that, that, that the tier one crypto VCs were all propping this up for so long, like Mike Novogratz from Galaxy and uh, Jump Capital and like... Uh, Arca invest like there were so many big tier one funds that were propping this Ponzi scheme up that they've lost a shitload of money as it popped and now they have these liquidity positions in all these other DeFi protocols that once they're gonna make they're gonna start making economic calculations that um, at a certain like they have to prop all this stuff up and that's why they fought it so hard to keep it from depegging back in January that's when I wrote the thread because in January. There was a there was another Ponzi scheme that exploded called Ohm. I don't know if you guys remember the Ohm Ponzi. It was like everybody on Twitter Ohm, had like yes, we did. Yeah, three comma three. Olympus. Yeah, the re Olympus Dow rebasing. You know that was the three three thing where they for 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 like almost eight months people were kind of drinking that Kool Aid, thinking that this is the reserve currency of DeFi and eighty thousand percent APY makes makes sense because. We're all going to hold. We're all going to stake the protocol, you know, sacrifice our money to the protocol. And if nobody sells, then it's great. It's gravy. We can sustain the 80,000% APY. That's not human nature, though. Human nature is to look out for number one. That's the exactly. It was built on a flawed premise of this game theory behind uh, the prisoner's dilemma, which says that if ever, if you're if you're like, you know, in this prisoner's dilemma, and, you know, two prisoners there or two people are held in separate rooms and questioned by the police and asked if they should confess or not uh, or, or rat out the other person. 
then the optimal choice is like the third choice for both people, which is just to not say, not confess and not write out the other person. And then you get the like the best outcome. So in the staking kind of like Ponzi manipulation uh, logic that they push forward with, with uh, Ohm, it was that you had to stake your bond, your money into the protocol and stake your bonded returns and then earn that money and don't sell it. And it was like, that's three, three. If we all do that, then we can make it. We can, we're all going to make it like that was what was getting pushed out. And it worked for a long time. It got to the point where Mark Cuban was tweeting like about this stuff. Like Mark Cuban was supporting this stuff. And Tim Ferriss. We played, was we actually, played around with it a bit because it was just like, whoa, what is going on with this stuff? It was it was an interesting experiment. And it's like, I'll put a little bit in here just to play around with it because this this is some this is some because I've been to Vegas before. I mean, you know. yeah. <laughs> but you know who made who made the most money on these things was like the insiders because they get in at the very beginning of it and then they're making like massive bags of money on it and these funds like ftx and and whatever when they start adding adding these things to their exchanges that sends a signal to the rest of the market that i guess this is good enough for me to trade it's on these big exchanges and they start making tons of money on the fees just milking money from retail that are gambling on this stuff but really it's contagion risk when it blows up because you don't just have these things isolated anymore DeFi is all about interoperability and bridging to other blockchains and like posting your staked thing in this farm to get yield and then taking your your derivative token that you got from that and going and putting it over here and getting another 10%. So everything's interconnected. And so when they start adding like all these Ponzi-nomic lockup things to DeFi and making it all about making as much yield as you possibly can and then adding leverage to it through things like Abracadabra and an anchor protocol on Terra Luna, it increases the risk that this stuff is going to blow up. And as I started learning more and more about this, I realized like this is exactly like what caused the financial system to explode in 2000 and in, uh, in 1998 and in 2008, because in 1998, there was this thing, there was this fund called LTCM, long-term capital management. And if anybody wants to read a really great book about like learning about the risks of the traditional financial markets, read the book Currency Wars by James Rickards. That is an amazing book. I've read awesome that book. book. The, historic, the history of how money's been manipulated over time and all the reserve currencies and the wars and how everything eventually gets repegged back to gold. And uh, it's, it's a great book. And, so the, in and the, the exercises that they did at, at the Pentagon to sort of yeah. try to collapse other people's currencies. Exactly. And so that's the point that I'm saying, like in that book, he talks about how he was the chief counsel of LTCM. And what happened was they were doing this just like in DeFi, just like in crypto, these really smart people, the smartest people in the room, like these these like autistic nerds, like 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 Vitalik and Sam Bankman-Fried that are wearing shorts and ripped shirts when they're on stage with presidents. You know what I mean? Like these guys that like they're they're like the geniuses, right? Well, geniuses fail when exogenous things happen and they're so cocky and confident in themselves. They end up hurting a lot of other people because if you push this stuff too much, it's all going to explode. And it, what happened in, in uh, 2000, in 1998 was LTCM was making a boatload of money, billions of dollars doing this sophisticated strategy of statistical arbitrage. And basically what that was, was using high leverage on government bonds to bet that like when you issue a new bond, sometimes it's cheaper than the old bond, or sometimes it's more expensive. And eventually they should peg. They should all be worth the same. So they're going to bet with high leverage that the peg will go back to like 
fungibility, you know, and that usually works if you're really smart and you have great algorithms. But what happened in 1998 was the bond that they were trading was the Russian debt and the Russia, Russia defaulted that it went to zero. So they've got massive leverage on this thing that went to zero. So they it, this is the black swan sort of thing that happened in the markets. And when that went to zero, LTCM went bankrupt. And that doesn't just stay contained to the people that were invested in LTCM because actually James Rickards points out in the book that LTCM collapsing almost took down the entire financial system. They had to go to the Federal Reserve and, and meet with all the other global systemic important banks because Bear Stearns and JP Morgan and Deutsche Bank and all of these all of these banks were exposed to LTCM. They had positions and they owned money with LTCM. And now that LTCM was going bankrupt because Russia was going bankrupt, it was cascading over because everybody's over leveraged. So they had to actually meet with the Federal Reserve and the Treasury and like try to save the financial system. And they were very close to having to do a bailout like they did in 2008. But it was Bear Stearns that actually decided not to participate and actually wanted to get paid back. So they called their debts in. And, it, and that's why in 2008, Bear Stearns was sacrificed because they didn't play ball in, in 1998 when mm. the system was falling apart. So you flash forward, fast forward to 2008, the same thing happens again. Everybody's over leveraged with this toxic derivative stuff, these uh, collateralized debt obligations. And then what happens when um, you start to realize that this shit is all toxic garbage, it's not worth anything? You stop, you stop trading. You stop taking the other bank's debts. You stop, um, you just pull your liquidity out as, as fast as you can because you realize that somebody's bankrupt. And I don't want to be the one holding the bankrupt debt to this other person that was way overexposed in this bubble. Yeah, when the music synthetic. stops, you want a seat, right? That's that's yeah, yeah exactly. About you want a seat. By the way, uh, you get a point for the use of the word exogenous. Exogenous. <laughs> that's fantastic. I also comes to mind that Steely Dan, the band, were ahead of their time because they were singing about stable coins, you know, 30, 40 years ago, and they said, "Peg, it will come back to you." So, you know, the whole idea there was for it to be stable. But I have a question around this um, now. Uh, Do Kwan is coming sure. out with the revival plan you know what what does this entail and is it laughable is it possible tell us what you know about this well right now i think what do Kwan is doing is just trying to survive um i think i think like the the idea that this can come back is kind of the same idea that like bear stearns would be able to come back after the after the bankruptcy you know, event in 2008 or that LTCM would be able to come back in 1998. Like the, the equivalent, what the equivalent here is that um, Terra blockchain was, was basically Russia. Like when this thing blew up because it grew too fast, it was, it, it was exposed to magic internet money in January. And when the Ponzi's, when the Ponzi's blew up in January, Ohm and Wonderland, they were massive. They were multi-billion dollars. When they blew up in January, it was actually exposed to Luna because there was this strategy where you go from Anchor, where you're getting 20% APY, right, to deposit your Terra. So Anchor has this like honeypot where you're supposed to like mint UST from the Luna coin to put into Anchor protocol to get 20%. So people were doing that. But then they realized, wait, you can loop it to magic internet money into Abracadabra 
and back to make another 20% and kind of add leverage. So then people are collateralizing more into Luna to mint more UST to put it into Anchor to then loop it back and forth and back and forth. And these DAOs like Ohm and Wonderland and lots of DAOs now that control treasuries, they're like degenerates trying to make money for the, they're basically like decentralized LTCMs. They're like decentralized hedge funds trying to just earn money. So they were all doing this too. Ohm was doing it. Wonderland was doing it. The treasury managers are all trying to like earn yield in DeFi. So what happened when it blew up in January was there's only about $100 million of liquidity room to be able to actually get out of the thing, but it had grown to like $10 billion in January. So it's like this one small door to exit. And when people like ah. when people when people want the seat, like you said, when everybody wants a seat, there's only one seat, right? Like it's like only enough people can get out of that door before it starts to depeg. So the first person to get out in Ohm and in Wonderland and in, in Terra and all that stuff, the first person to get out is the person that's you know likely to actually survive. And like you said, this isn't actually a prisoner's dilemma. It's it's like it's capitalism. It's actually like whoever can make the most money wins. So everybody has like the GM thing and the community thing. But honestly, I feel like that's just propaganda pushed out there to get people to just hold as long as they possibly can to hold the bag open for all these whales and insiders that are just milking everybody. So what happened with this thing was people actually realized that there wasn't enough room. So they start to panic and they start to sell. Because if you want to get out through the algorithm, it's a small amount. It's 100 million, right? Then the next door is the DeFi curve, the curve vaults. But curve has like magic internet money pegged with UST, pegged with USDT. And it's like 33%, 33%, 33%. You're supposed to be able to like be able to get like, say, half a billion dollars worth of liquidity in those. So there's like a second door to go out, which is the decentralized door, the DeFi door. Well, the, the, the big hedge funds that are actually the whales that are that are propping all this stuff up, when they start to realize people are running for the exits in the first door, they take their money out of the second door before the retail people and the smaller people can get out. And then before you know it, you can't even get out of that door. So what do they do? They go for the big door, Binance, Coinbase, decentralized exchanges like Uniswap. And the slippage gets so big that they're just people just start to panic and they're like, I'm going to take 50% off. Like, I just want to get my money out, you know? That's why it can go from 100 bucks to zero, because at, cer at a certain point, it's like everybody freaks out and the Ponzi collapses and everybody just wants the money. Even if it's 10 cents on the dollar, people just get out. So at this point, people have had their lives completely destroyed by this Terra Luna project. I don't understand how Galaxy makes it out of this. I don't understand how uh, FTX and and like Jump Capital and all these guys that were propping this thing up saying it wasn't a Ponzi scheme. I really don't understand. Like crypto, like yeah, Novogratz, Crypto Man Ran, Raul Paul from Real Vision, like the co-founder of Real Vision was one of the main culprits of this thing. For, so for I just, those who are just listening, I'm showing a screen right now. Max Kaiser, who of course is as maxi as they get, no pun intended, says we're experiencing crypto's fourth great wave of con men and grifters getting wiped out. And he tagged, said goodbye, Novogratz, Raul GMI, crypto, uh, crypto man ran and stable Quan. Uh, I don't necessarily agree or disagree with him, but he is calling these people out and you're not wrong. Uh, there's pictures here, you know, there's, there's uh, Novogratz hanging out with, uh, um, with stable Quan. Oh, he got the tattoo of himself. Like go down there. There's the tattoo. That's oh, wow. Mike Novogratz. He tattooed Luna on himself. <laughs> Somebody changes it to Laura. Laura. 
that's hilarious. So I want to talk about I want to talk about the what collapsed Luna was this big play by some very big whales, right? They borrowed hundred thousand Bitcoin. They sold Bitcoin. I, I, I've read what happened. Like they, uh, BlackRock and Vanguard are maybe at the top of this whole thing that collapsed Luna because you know the government realizes, whoa, they can't take down Bitcoin network. But maybe we've seen some flaws in some of these other ones. Where's the biggest vulnerability? And I read that BlackRock borrowed a bunch of Bitcoin, converted it to UST, and then did this thing that which collapsed. I don't know. Do you explain what, what, what ended up happening? So honestly, Travis, like I, I think that's just people coping with the fact that they were in a Ponzi scam and they don't understand that it was a Ponzi scam. They they still think that like people like me are just butthurt maxis that missed the bubble or something like that. And they're just like, it's hard to rationalize the fact that you were promoting a Ponzi scam if you were one of the main people with the, with the moon in your name, right? If you right. made your whole identity about this thing and you had Raul Paul from Real Vision, which is supposed to be this reputable macro trading service right. promoting this crap, like the co-founder of, Re- of Real Vision was like in bed with all this. And you had Mike Novogratz, who's celebrated by all the crypto guys. And like, he's, right. he's, he's, he's like a promoting blockchain hero. <laughs> yeah, like that. that's why a lot of Bitcoiners are very like, we don't like Novogratz that much. I mean, he's a nice person, but he's like, he's promoting Ponzi scams and he's causing him and Ralph Paul. And these guys are, are actually causing a lot of people to, to like think that these things are new innovative technologies. And that's why a lot of us are, are upset with them. And it can come across sometimes like we're just the toxic maxis or whatever, but really it's that we've been trying to warn people about this for a year, a year and a half. And we have people that are way more influential in the space. Like, lending their credibility to this stuff and ended up getting people destroyed in the process. So there's, there's like, of course there could, like I pointed out back in January in that thread, I have one of the tweets that says somebody's going to make a a billion dollars shorting this thing and causing it to collapse. So I identified back then that somebody could do like a George Soros style play or like in that book, currency wars, when they were war gaming, how you could crash an economy and profit from it. Like that happens for sure. But imagine screwing over that many people so you could make more money. I I got a question here for you. Um, But wait, that, but that, that's not the point though. The point is that it was going to blow up anyways. The point is that they, they, they caused this, this thing to blow to, to, to grow to $18 billion and people were going to eventually run for the exits anyways, as, as the, as the bear market sort of set in and people start realizing like, wait a second, it doesn't make sense. I'm getting 20% APY on this Luna thing that doesn't even have any real value. And people start to want to go back into their bank accounts and take their money out. But there's this, there's not enough room to get out. So somebody. They, they just, just hastened it, really. They just hastened it and made some money off it. But it was going to blow up eventually, just like Ohm and Wonderland and, and a, countless other of these things did. So this article came out from the New York Post on May 13th. Coinbase warns customers they may lose crypto if company goes bankrupt. And basically, uh, you know, if you read um, in the filings, it says that um, customers could be subject to bankruptcy proceedings, meaning that if Coinbase did go bankrupt, then you can lose any crypto or cash balances that are in there. Does this put USDC also in, in the line of fire? And, and on a more macro question, are any of the stable coins, including USDT, actually reliable? 
So in this case here, like, yes, any asset that's in your bank account at any exchange is going to be tied up in, in bankruptcy proceedings, not even if it's USDC, but even if it's just database USD on their on the balance sheet there. Like the only exception to that rule right now is Kraken with Bitcoin only because Kraken is uh, got one of those uh, Wyoming um, SBDI bank licenses. Like they're basically like a real bank at this point with the Bitcoin holdings which protects customers' Bitcoin from being tied up in bankruptcy proceedings. So like not your keys, not your coins, right? This is a story as old as time with Bitcoiners been yelling this from the rooftops since 2010, 2011. Like don't keep your currency on exchanges. That's why a lot of us Bitcoiners say don't use BlockFi, don't use Celsius, don't use Nexo and Crypto.com. Don't use any centralized service that is telling you that they're going to give you yield because as we know with web two, you know, you are the product, like they're doing something with your Bitcoin to get that yield. And if you don't want to risk having it get lost and tied up in bankruptcy or when the market collapses, maybe they were too exposed to anchor protocol. Maybe they decided they wanted to hold a big bag of Luna because Mike Novogratz tattooed it on his arm and they figured like jump capitals, one of the biggest trading funds in the world is propping this thing up with $300 million and then eventually $10 billion of Bitcoin, quote unquote. So it's safe. And then they're getting yield in that 20% anchor protocol. That's what these exchanges and some of these uh, centralized exchanges are doing. They're actually integrated with these extremely risky Ponzi schemes. They, they take customer deposits and they put it in anchor protocol and get yield. And then they give you 10% and they keep 20%. So like <laughs> there's serious contagion risk that this could affect centralized exchanges like Coinbase and decentralized exchanges because there is no central bank of DeFi. Like that's the thing that I pointed out in my article back or my uh, my tweet storm back in January that like unlike the traditional financial system in both systems, it's 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 like toxic, uh, derivative, synthetic, risky things that don't have any value for society in both Wall Street and in DeFi. But at least in DeFi, I'll give them the credit that it's transparent. We can see when something's a Ponzi scheme and we can predict when it's going to blow up. In the traditional markets with the banks, the way that they're all opaque and the Federal Reserve holds closed door meetings with the Treasury to bail out corporations and banks whenever they want, we don't, we don't actually, we can't measure the risks in the traditional markets. But the one thing that they have that we don't have in, in the crypto DeFi world is a central bank that can rescue it. So like, Jump Capital and and uh, these funds that were coming up with the money to to prop up these DeFi things and rescue them when they get hacked, like Wormhole Protocol got hacked on Solana for three hundred million. Jump put in three hundred million. Like these guys are acting like the wildcat bankers of the nineteen twenties. Like the J.P. Morgan is named after a literal guy, J.P. Morgan. He was like rescuing banks and rescuing the markets when they were collapsing during the Great Depression. And he was calling for a central bank to be able to provide liquidity and provide trust and provide confidence when the markets were in turmoil. So that's why we ended he up with a central bank. He was actually behind even manipulating the, the downward turn to actually help them. And then he would bail them out to look like the hero to get the central bank that they wanted yes. in the first place. Sure. Yeah. The creature and eventually, from Jekyll Island, baby. I mean, it goes, it goes way back to all of that. This currency wars and manipulations have been going on for a very long time. Well, before we get too far off of this, I want to I want to actually share this one thing here because Do Kwan was just on an interview just about 9 days ago and he was talking about, you know, 95% of, of crypto 
is going to go down. So let's let's take a look and listen to what what Mr. Do Kwan here had to say about all of that. I wonder how many of uh, these companies you think are entering the space just because it's hot and there's a lot of funding versus the ones that will still be here, you know, like two to five years later. 95% are going to die. Yeah. 95% are going to die. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's also entertainment in watching companies die too. There's entertainment. Oh man, that's 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 so <laughs> evil. At least you get to learn from it, right? Uh, I wonder how many. It's of, entertaining uh, watching these coins die, you guys. That's <laughs> really, ninety-five percent of them are going to tank, you guys. <laughs> that is cold. Like that is, yeah. that is not. Mm, talk o- talk about uh, karma. Yeah, irony. So uh, I want to go back to this this question of stable coins. Um, are the other primaries, whether they're USDC or USDT, at risk from something like this or something that's unseen? Like, and if it was you, in your personal opinion, where do you think is the safest stable coin? Yeah. So, so listen. Like, honestly, there is ma- there's massive risk right now in the system. If you if you want to bring up that chart that I showed you of the uh, the Alpha Trends market structure. That'd be this um, one right here. Uh, well, no, this was just one where I was saying that, like, I oh, kind of this, this had, one. Here we go. Yeah, this is the one. So this was like back in January of 2021. I was I was calling it that we were in phase two one of the of the market structure, which is where we were. I mean, like that was the very beginning. It was clear that like we're we're at, right at the beginning of the bull run, and then. About a month and a half ago, if you pull up that next tweet that I had where I kind of like reposted that as we are now in 4-2. So that is about, or actually it was about a month ago. What's the date on that tweet? Uh, this would be on March A month 25th. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Or a month and a half. So yeah, like we were pretty much there. I mean, 4-2 is, is kind of like the mid decline. And then now I feel like we're in 4-3. Like we're, we're, we're headed into this unfortunately long painful bear market that's going to wipe out a lot of people because um you know like you don't want to be buying buying uh, rallies in this kind of a market like it's too risky and i think i've been pretty accurate with my calls on the macro structure of the way this market played out and i've been pretty accurate about like predicting like what's what's going to blow up and and uh when uh not when and you know necessarily to the day but like what what's primed to blow up because of the incentives that caused it to cr- to cr- grow so big in the first place and unfortunately like the way i'm looking at it is like guys because there is no central bank of defi because there's no federal reserve here to be able to just keep propping this thing up like in the stock market i mean we should have had a stock market collapse and a real estate collapse long ago but because of long, quantitative long easing yeah yeah because of quantitative easing and and like lots of credit expansion and you know the the federal reserve and the treasury and the commercial banks working together to like make the conditions easy for propping up the markets yeah this is this is what i said like a month and a half ago as well that like we had that relief rally and and everybody was so excited and they were talking about like eth's going to flip bitcoin and bitcoin's going to 100k and it's like nfts are going to go off you know take off again i'm like guys you guys are you guys are kind of like this is hopium we're we're in phase 42 of this market structure we're going down, unfortunately, as much as a long-term bull as I am on Bitcoin, like I'm not, I'm not selling my Bitcoin. I'm, I'm like holding my Bitcoin for my heirs. 
You know, like I'm not selling my Bitcoin. So I know that the price is going to crash. I'm just a, I'm a bad trader. So I'm not going to try to trade this crash because I look at everything else in the system and I look at the stock market and I look at the dollar. I look at the like the problems of money itself. And I don't want to have anything else other than Bitcoin as my frame of reference and my unit of account. So even though I recognize the structure of the market is not good and it's going to be some rough times coming up, especially for people in the really risky stuff like the JPEGs and the and the DeFi coins, <laughs> like I'm so not selling Bitcoin. I'm just going to keep buying more Bitcoin because in the end I'm going to get them. I'm going to get it cheaper. But I like to like when I. I mean, I'm still going to like be educating people about Bitcoin because I do think it's the most important thing that we can talk about. And it is the one chance that most Gen Z's and millennials have right now of having like a generational wealth transfer, because this is going to end at some point. And well, I mean, I mean, the pain, like the bear market is going to end at some point, maybe it's a year, whatever. But during that year, um, there's still only about 2% of the world that has access to Bitcoin right now. And Bitcoiners are just like not stopping. Like the, the hash rate for Bitcoin never went down like for more than a, uh, a couple of weeks in, in the last bear market. Bitcoiners just keep building. The Bitcoin holder base keeps growing. Even during the bear market, we keep educating people, keep getting the sound information out there. And I don't think that's going to stop again in this market. But for, the, for everybody else that's in like uh, DeFi stuff, I think it's going to be a lot more Terra Luna's unfortunately, because everybody's exposed to the, the all these strategies. Um, you know, like Celsius, like I said before, Celsius is a high risk thing to be in right now. Last summer, I was saying that Celsius is a high risk to be to blow up because of the regulatory risk of their coin. And because they lost a bunch of money in DeFi that they didn't disclose. <laughs> so like, the Celsius coin is down 90% since I tweeted that and people were calling me a boomer, boomer Bitcoiner. Like I'm just, a, I'm just, I'm just like fudding Celsius and all stuff. I'm like, guys, like their, their CFO was arrested for fraud. Like th th this is not just boomer Bitcoiner hating on altcoins. This is like, look at this stuff. This, this is, this is not valuable. This is high risk. Uh -huh. So get your shit coins off my lawn. Get off my lawn, you shit coiner. <laughs> wow. Well, speaking of lawn, we've gone long. Uh, Trav, I'm going to toss you the last question here, and then we're going to wrap this up. Make it a good so one. It, it would seem from, from this conversation here that, you know, the we, we are in for a long winter, maybe the longest winter potentially, which I would have thought, you know, with all of the inflation and all of the quantitative easing that the crypto market would, would it seems to me Bitcoin should be a hundred grand right now, if not more, because of the way that money's being manipulated. But it's, it's very clear now that the elite can easily manipulate the crypto markets as well. So where do you think we are and what, what, what is the outlook over these next 12 to 24 months? Well, I also like, I should have sent you that tweet too, because I also called the collapse of the stock market or like the crash of the, uh, the meme coin, uh, the meme stocks and the tech stocks about three months ago, uh, I, uh, two and a half months ago when the Russian sanctions got dropped. I recognized that as like a nuclear bomb getting dropped on the economy and the markets. Yeah. And, and people weren't really internalizing how serious that was. It's because huge. it's it's it is 
it's an earthquake to the financial system when, because now Russia is working with China and Iran and Brazil and all these other countries. Now they think, oh, America can just cancel us from the financial system. Well, guess what? We're not going to be part of that. And now flooding of dollars is going to come back to America, creating hyperinflation, right? We, we talked about that. that that's a, this is monumental. Yeah, well, that that's one reason like the decline of U.S. hegemony actually is like one of the main reasons, because, uh, you know, Ray Dalio has this awesome YouTube video that everybody should watch called mm. Principles for Changing World Order. It's like 40 yeah. minutes long, but it's really highly it's an amazing uh, illustration. produced. Yeah. yeah, it's great. But the other thing is that like China and Russia and Canada, uh, uh, United States are kind of have been in this like superpower struggle for a while now. And. The decline of U.S. hegemony is one problem, but also just like I had described with in 2008 and 2000 and 2008 with with like the risk of contagion, like going across the financial system and affecting all the different banks and causing them to like not trust each other and markets to lock up. That happens when you erase a country from the financial system. It's basically like causing the Russian default to happen again. So they basically like dropped a bomb on the on the economy. And at the same time, we've got global food shortages happening because Russia and Ukraine now are in this in this conflict and the farmers are not going to have the ability to produce enough wheat for the rest of Europe. China actually had to kill most of their cows and like livestock because of some kind of like a similar to like a coronavirus thing that went through the through the through the livestock so they don't have enough food to feed their people and they're they stopped exporting um goods and services to the rest of the world like fertilizer china stopped exporting fertilizer so when that happens like china is actually starving their citizens right now i'm not, not sure if you guys are are seeing this but in shanghai and some of these yeah. major cities they're literally pretending that it's like zero COVID policy is why people are getting locked in their buildings. It's actually because they don't have enough food to feed the billion Chinese people. And and at the same time, this is an economic World War Three because that Russian sanction was a nuclear bomb dropped on the economy. And so China is retaliating with, well, COVID, we want to go to zero COVID. But really what they're doing is using COVID as a smokescreen to stop exporting things to the United States that is going to end up driving massive inflation over here. So, you know, you're talking about a long bear market. I mean, there's, there's, this is why I was predicting that the stocks were going to fall and that the bond market was going to explode and real estate is going to start coming down and crypto was going to get smashed as well because Bitcoin is not a protection against short-term volatility. It's a long-term protection against volatility. So Bitcoin is the best way to think about Bitcoin is like five to 10 year timeframes. That's why most Bitcoiners are like, save in Bitcoin. Don't trade Bitcoin. Don't invest in Bitcoin. Save in Bitcoin. So if you start thinking about Bitcoin as a long-term savings account, you can ride out and you can shift your mindset and think like, oh, well, I don't need to actually become a trader and like try to time these markets. Because if you really understand what Bitcoin is, and you dig into it and you start like listening to like Preston Pish's podcast or like Swan Bitcoin, like the podcast that they put out and you start actually engaging with Bitcoiners and, and the books that we put out and like the Bitcoin logic, you know, you really start to think in longer term timeframes and it becomes less about like 
making a quick flip on a DeFi coin or earning a 20% yield on a DeFi uh, yield farm or like, you know, buying a buying a, an NFT mint and trying to get money on that. Like it becomes more about um, thinking long term and understanding why this stuff is valuable. So I will just say that like, I don't think that there's massive risk in like the stable coins collapsing like USDC and USDT. I don't think there's much risk at all in USDT or USDC. Um, I think there's a lot of risk in all the other DeFi things. Like, you know, I think anybody owning DeFi coins right now is kind of like owning ICO safts in 2018. You know, like May 2018, if you had been super active and you had bought like 20 safts from these ICOs, that's kind of like the equivalent of owning a bunch of JPEGs, like owning owning like punks and bored apes and stuff like that right now. Like you got into this exclusive club of like pre-sale saft, you know, owner. And once it launches or whatever, once once everybody recognizes what you got, you're gonna make a bunch of money. Actually, the smart decision would have been to just get liquidity. So people are kind of stuck in this mindset right now of like what just happened in the last year and a half. And I think it's time that people start digging more into what makes Bitcoin valuable because then you'll kind of understand that. The rest of the stuff is not actually as valuable as you thought it was. And you may never get liquidity on this stuff. So I know that's hard to hear for a lot of people that are thinking like, ah, shit, well, I'm doing all this, these projects and whatever. But like, it's good for people to at least be exposed to this logic that like us crazy Bitcoin maxis have, because, you know, maybe we're wrong. So maybe you don't sell everything, but at least now you, you're aware that there's more risk to be continuing to doing what you were doing last year. Than there, than there was a few months ago. Because right now we're in World War III, but it's not like a hot war. It's like an economic war. And crypto- Asymmetrical. You're exactly cri- right on. Cri- crypto doesn't do well in like that type of environment. I don't think it's going to be like a three-year bear market or anything like that. I, I just think it's like, it's unpredictable at this point. Like I've, I've kind of been accurate about what I've predicted so far to happen and, and how I've thought about it playing out. The only thing I can think now is it's going to be it's going to be more downward pressure on crypto and, and Bitcoin even like I, I wouldn't be surprised if I see Bitcoin at twenty thousand dollars. I'm going to buy it. I, I bought the dip yesterday. I'm, I'm going to buy I the dip too. again. <laughs> I'm going to keep well, buying dips. We're halfway to the having. It's the having having. And we know what <laughs> happens when the having actually hits difficulty, you know, doubles and the number of Bitcoin popping out cuts in half. And uh, usually the, the price follows those economics. Uh, Brad Mills, the website, bradmills.ca, the podcast, Magic Internet Money. Dude, thanks for coming on and, and dropping so much knowledge today because uh, we certainly need it here. And we encourage yeah. you to go follow Brad Mills Can on the Twitters and maybe you too will get to to this podcast. Yeah. I I think this is the longest podcast we've ever had, Brad. I think so. Oh, well, let me say one last thing though, because I know you got those JPEGs behind you. I'm actually like, I'm, I I have a bunch of like collectible NFTs and stuff like that. I'm not a hater on this stuff. I used to be in the gaming industry. So I understand like, it does make sense that you'd have the use case of having digital collectibles, digital game assets, uh, digital art, things like that. So it, it does make sense to me. I think the, the problem is that like this, this bubble created a kind of like, I think we all had undiagnosed brain swelling from COVID or something. And we are a risk part of our brain kind of like short circuited or something. And everybody's like, yeah, it makes sense to spend a million dollars on a, on a picture of a monkey. 
that's not the kind of value I don't think is going to happen. No, like, no. We're looking that, that's... for utility. Utility <clears throat> is the key. What does this NFT do? What does it unlock? What do I get? What community am I part of? What experiences will I receive? What physical goods, digital goods? It's it's j- the pictures are the pictures, right? But the key is what's important. What do they unlock? And that's what we're looking at, whether it's metaverse, whether it's play to earn, you know, real life encounters with celebrities, sports figures, whatever it is, it's got to add value. And that, and that's like, if you look at the the chart of like where we're going, I think a lot of that logic is, is not going to work out honestly in the, in the next year and a half. I think what we're going to settle on is like the same thing as you would pay for like a, a celebrity's autograph at Comic-Con or uh, an OnlyFans subscription or something like that. Like you're going to be paying like hundreds of dollars a month for something. You wouldn't be paying like tens of thousands of dollars for some NFT that gives you access to some community. You can get that for free. Like it's just logic is going to come back into this market and the same utility coin MV equals PQ stuff that was really popular last cycle and took a year and a half to just evaporate and people to realize that we learned the lesson that that didn't actually plan out. I think all these utility narratives we're going to kind of come to the conclusion in a year and a half that we were a bit like uh, a l- little bit hopeful on that. The fact that you could like a- a- ascribe some big, huge value on being part of a community or whatever, and that it will long term live on and it's going to be culturally relevant for a long time, but it's going to be in the dollars amount, not thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars amount for these things like no different than backing someone on Patreon or having like backing somebody's Kickstarter project. That's what I think it's going to coalesce on. There's going to be trillions of NFTs. So there's going to be unlimited amounts of NFTs. Every influencer is going to have digital collectibles and digital assets and things like that. So there's definitely value to be one of the companies building that stuff, but there is zero value long-term in investing in the idea of like NFTs are going to become the next Bitcoin or something like that. So, so I mean, we're, we're way over. I'm sure you guys want to. Uh... No, man, that's great. You know what Billy Joel would say? He would say, you may be right. Uh, and, and only yeah. time is, is going to tell. Appreciate your opinion. And uh, thanks for coming on, man. We'll definitely have you back when we got five hours. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Now, that was good, man. And make sure he's got the Magical Internet Money podcast. If you want to listen to more words by Brad Mills. He is over there, but don't listen to him in, instead of us. Listen to him in addition to us because we don't want to lose all our listeners. Yeah, he's you guys the ever, do you ever Do you ever do uh, like Twitter spaces or Clubhouse or anything like that? Like to do we're live? We're starting to do more and more of those, yeah. yeah. Awesome. We should, do, we should do one of those sometimes and just kind of like shoot the shit on uh, Let's Clubhouse. Let's do one of or... these after we launch when the show goes live. Yeah, this is coming out Sunday. We're still recording, by the way. So you guys are hearing the genesis of collaboration happening mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. What do you want to do, man? I just do a clubhouse room or like a Twitter space the or something. We can do both of them at the same time through Audio Labs. Uh, there's a tool we can do both of them at the same time. So maybe we do it on uh, Sunday or Monday. What works for you? Uh, probably Monday, Sunday. That's my birthday. Oh, happy birthday. All right. You guys are going to want to check our Twitter and uh, Brad Mills can on Twitter uh, and Bad Crypto Pod. We're going to let you guys know when the spaces is going to happen. So be ready to tune into that. And uh, thanks again, Brad. Thanks, guys. So he didn't really crap on NFTs. He was just saying that we're going to see a lot more um, common 
pricing around these things. And I, you know, I'm not quite sure that he's, he's right on this. I do agree that most NFT projects are not going to be worth what people minted for them, but there will be those that truly do become blue chip. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's only really two true blue chips out there. I hate the way people bounce around that term blue chip for a collection that's been around for three months. I feel like CryptoPunks and the Bored Apes are the only real blue chips. Others are aspiring to be, but you know, blue chip indicates time tested and proven. Yeah, over- I would say Friends is probably close to being one with uh, how they've held, they've held a lot, but the, there's so many of them now at this point with the V2 series and some mm-hmm. of the other stuff, but you know, gift goats are still 25 ETH. Right. A couple of weeks ago, they were getting close to 50 ETH. And I was, I was thinking about unloading one a couple of weeks ago for 50 ETH, but it didn't quite, my, my sale didn't quite get triggered. But um, yeah, I think that, you know, NFTs are going to be becoming more commonplace. And, you know, maybe platforms like Wax are going to be well suited to cover that because there's not huge gas fees. I think right. we, we saw Wax really early on and, um, you know, realized that, hey, these sort of inexpensive NFTs to mint them and launch them and, and, and create, you know, uh, fan experiences around them. That's good. But just the market was really greedy and they wanted to really tank up and, and uh, you know, rock out on Ethereum because those fees are so big. But aside from that, I mean, he was just so spot on on what's happened on, on with Luna, the backstory behind it. Not only that, but the currency wars, I would recommend listening to the book. Currency wars are actually reading the book. I actually have the audio book. I think I'm about 70% done of it, but uh, all the show notes guys are here and uh, there's a lot of learnings to be had, you know, be safe out there because as you know, crypto goes up, crypto goes down. Sometimes crypto really fucking goes way down. And so you got to be aware of that. Here we are. Um, I still have a t-shirt that says I survived the crypto winter, but I don't know. I need to get a jacket. It's getting kind of chilly up in here. (laughs) You know, it's so unpredictable. And this is why I really don't follow anybody's charting uh, because crypto goes up, crypto goes down. And I agree with Brad that as far as Bitcoin is concerned, we're in this for the long haul. Um, We have some cool stuff coming your way, gang. We told you that we're going to be launching a Bad Crypto Nifty Club. I think we're going to be able to launch that on the next episode. And for those of you who are listeners, you're going to get a free membership card. And uh, we hope that on Wednesday's show, we'll be able to give you more information about that. And also, we are going to do a Twitter Spaces uh, with Brad. And we don't know exactly when that's going to be. We talked about maybe doing it the Monday after this episode. Maybe we'll do it a little later in the week. I don't know, but you're going to want to watch at Brad Mills can and at Bad Crypto Pod on the Twitters for an announcement of when those Twitter spaces will be so that we can unpack more from this episode and uh, have more words. Yeah. You know, that might be something that we do more is like we launch our show, the show goes out and then maybe 24 hours later, we jump on a Twitter space or a clubhouse and talk about it with the guest that was on that show. That could be something that we maybe do more for, um, Oh, well, we're not, we've not talked about that thing we're doing with the Nifty Club thing. In the no, we're not. We're not talking about right. it yet. Well, I talked about it. I just didn't give any details yet. Okay, yeah, we're not going to talk about it. Because we got a couple more things to uh, to figure out. But all righty. Well, hey, everybody, thanks for listening, tuning in. Make sure you let at Brad Mills can know that you appreciate his time with us today. And we'd love if you'd appreciate us as well by going to iTunes or wherever it is you listen and give us a five-star review. Be funny. Mention corn. That's guaranteed to get a shout out on the show. If you want a free shout out 
on the show, mention porn or something else, or just tell us to uh, stay bad. Bad Crypto Podcast is a production of Bad Crypto LLC. The content of the show, the videos, and the website is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice of any kind. You shouldn't make any decisions as to finances, investing, trading, or anything else based on this information without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional financial advisor. Please understand that the trading of bitcoins and and alternative cryptocurrencies have potential risks involved. Anyone wishing to invest in any of the currencies or tokens mentioned on this podcast should first seek their own independent professional financial advisor. You can do that. Yeah. And if you want a paid shout out, then that costs extra. You need to message us at badcryptopodcast at gmail.com. Talk about all that. <laughs> Wait, was that bad? I should. We should have stayed bad already, shouldn't we?